So on a retreat like this, especially a long retreat like this, we talk a lot about how to practice through the meditation instructions, the talks that we give in the evening, and can be a lot of emphasis on the challenges in practice, how to work with the difficulties. And this, of course, can be helpful because it's often where we are, struggling with different states of mind, experiences in the body, not quite sure about uh, how to practice the best way, in quotes, to practice. But it can seem like there's a greater emphasis on that aspect of practice. Um, You might call it the first noble truth aspect of practice. And so because of that, it can seem like this, this teaching, this practice has an emphasis on dukkha, on suffering. Um, you know, it's right there in the first noble truth. But it's important to know that uh, this first noble truth doesn't say life is suffering or everything is suffering. It just says there is suffering and that knowing and understanding suffering and how it's caused or created is actually the way to the end of suffering. So all of the teachings and practices are in the service of that. But there can be periods of the retreat, whether it's more general or specific to your experience, where it can seem like we're all on pain patrol. It's like just the radar up. Where's the next problem? You know, the next difficulty in the body or the mind, emotions, memories that might come up. And just this sense of really a lot of purification going on. We've used this word a lot. Um, But it's important to always step back and look at why we're practicing and where this path is leading. And even as I say that, it's not as though what I'm going to, it's what I want to talk about tonight, but it's not in any way a kind of clear and direct, this is what should happen. Because for each and every one of us, we come into practice with different experiences, different intentions, motivations, causes and conditions. And if we have expectations, that's only going to lead to more suffering. But it's really about pointing to the possibilities of this path and where the map leads. So a little bit about what the process that's unfolding here and how to hold it in the context of the path. And I think I've In every talk I've given so far, I've made reference to a meditation cartoon just to let you know that uh, the world is taking notice of what we're doing here. And it's getting more, I don't know if you quite say mainstream yet, but certainly uh, in the the vernacular. And one of my favorites is uh, by Gayan Wilson. Some of you may know this. Two robed figures. There are usually robed figures in what looks like some kind of bleak meditation hall. It always looks very cold in these kind of meditation cartoons. And one is a a little younger and has a very disgruntled look on their face. And they have obviously just asked a question. And the older one is responding. And the caption goes, nothing happens next. This is it. (laughs) You get that, right? And that's... This is it. And then another one I like, it's um, Bizarro. Uh, There's a group of monks, look like they're protesting, and there's the lead monk is up there on the dais with the megaphone, and they're saying, what do we want? And the group says, mindfulness. 
When do we want it? Now. <laughs> so, both of them are pointing to something quite real that we can experience in our practice. Um, both the nothing happens next, but what do we want? It's not a distant goal that we're practicing for, though that, there is that potential. But really, we have to keep coming back to this experience now, the possibility for happiness, for contentment, here and now. That's one of the powerful um, developments of this path. Because if it doesn't happen now, I think someone used this line the other night, where, where are you going to find it? So happiness, contentment, here. And not as a demand. You know, we're not out there protesting. That's what we want. But really that, that um, sense of that's what's being cultivated here. That these... These states of well-being, of happiness, contentment, peace, joy, they're actually markers or signposts in our practice that we can start to begin to know and trust. And so many of the Buddha's teachings point to these kind of markers or signposts of well-being that we can use to guide our practice. So the seven factors of awakening that Bonnie talked about, I think people have mentioned the five spiritual faculties, another beautiful list, the paramis, the ten perfections, the brahma-viharas that we're teaching uh, here, metta and compassion, etc. Tonight I want to talk to another list that's more a meditative list, a, 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 a list that points to what gets developed in meditation, but it also specifically points to the qualities of contentment and happiness that are essential to develop on this path if our practice is to deepen. And these are the factors known as the jhanic factors. You may know that the Buddha was termed in his time the happy one, sugata. And there are uh, stories in the texts of people visiting monasteries and remarking on how the monks and nuns seem to be so happy, radiant, smiling that this was seen to be a very clear manifestation of the practice that they were doing. When we talk about happiness in the context of practice, so it's not, you know, the happiness of ice cream or, I don't know, playing on a swing or whatever, you know, some idea of la-di-da kind of happiness, but really a sense of well-being. And this uh, quality or mental experience of happiness is something that each of us needs to have some sense of for ourselves. Uh, when I often teach um, intensive metta retreats where that's the practice that we're doing in an ongoing way. And, you know, as one of the wishes is, may I be happy? I encourage people to explore what is happiness? What is happiness for you? What are you wishing for as you wish for happiness? And to really explore that so we have a real sense of what that is. So again, here on a retreat, it's not to do a lot of thinking about this, but we have to have some deep uh, intuitive awareness, Bonnie keeps using that term, of what we're pointing to here. So we know it when we see it, know it when we experience it. One of the books uh, I've liked, which is not a Buddhist book, even though many of the teachings in it are really applicable to our practice about happiness and how to develop happiness is called The Nine Choices of Extremely Happy People. And the subtitle is How We Choose to Be Happy. 
It's by two authors, Rick Foster and Greg Hicks. They actually live in the Bay Area, not far from Spirit Rock. They've come to Spirit Rock uh, to teach, to lead daylongs. They're good friends with James Barres, as, as you might know, is our guru of joy. We call him Mr. Joy, Dr. Love because he's always talking about waking up those qualities of the heart. And so he's made a good connection with uh, Rick and Greg. It's a great book, and they have a definition of happiness in there that I really like. And they say this, Our definition of happiness is a profound, enduring feeling of contentment, capability, and centeredness. It's a rich sense of well-being that comes from knowing that you can deal productively and creatively with all life offers, both the good and the bad. It's knowing your internal self and responding to your real needs rather than the demands of others. And it's a deep sense of engagement, living in the moment and enjoying life's bounty. So a lot of that we could say uh, as a Buddhist understanding, living in the moment, being able to deal with the ups and downs of life with some degree of equanimity and capacity. And they really talk about, and what we see in our practice, is that we can train in happiness. That through intention and choice, all of these factors we've been talking about, attention, perception, we can refine and deepen our capacity for happiness. It's not just random. And this book, what they did was interview, they went to these different communities and said, who's the happiest person you know? And once a number of people said the same person, they'd go interview that person. And with every person, they didn't find a life of bliss and joy and and, uh, always good fortune. They found people who'd really struggled. But somehow within that, had found a way to be happy. And so they distilled these nine choices. I I recommend the book. And so it's also central to our practice here. Bhikkhu Analeo, one of um, our deeply respected uh, practitioners and scholars in the Buddhist tradition, uh, teaches here at IMS and at Spirit Rock, um, it's actually going to be moving to BCBS sometime soon. He has this great line in one of his books where he said, the whole of the Buddhist path could be seen as a progressive refinement of joy. Progressive refinement of joy. If we want to develop happiness in, in this practice through the Buddha's understandings, we have to take a two-pronged approach. And I think we've talked about this, so I'm re- doing some repeating of what we've already said. We have to feed the wholesome states of mind. We have to starve, diminish, or even abandon the difficult, unwholesome, unskillful states of mind, the ones that cause suffering. This is our task. This is our practice over and over again. Once we start to understand the different maps and teachings that point us or show us how to do that, we can develop confidence in our own capacity to know how to navigate that terrain of feeding and starving. This is an imagery that the Buddha used again and again. So we know the map, we know the terrain. It's like we have our own internal GPS that keeps navigating us back. And this is a time-tested GPS. It's not, you know, some of them have been pretty flaky, right? There was that Apple version that came out a few years ago and it was leading people 
And they did, unfortunately, you know, drive into lakes and, you know, dead end streets because it's like, oh, the, the thing is telling me to keep going and people would end up in all these crazy places. This one has been time tested and we can start to refine its workings for ourselves in real time so we can validate it for ourselves. And even as I use this imagery of GPS, which has a sense of journey, which is, you know, in, in here we talk about the path of practice unfolding. But again and again, it's not to get somewhere else, but to discover it here and now. And this is what is so key, key in this practice. And to see that what we're doing, again, I've said this before, is training the mind. Training the mind to be a friend and an ally and support on this path. Use the, I think I've said this before, where the Buddha said, and I'm paraphrasing something like, the untrained mind is worse for you than your enemy, the well-trained mind more helpful to you than your best friend. This is what we're doing here, this training of the mind to discover here and now this capacity for well-being um, and ease. One of the important aspects of this training that the Buddha spoke about again and again is deepening in concentration, samadhi. And it's one of the path factors. I talked the Four Noble Truths, the, eight, the fourth truth is the Eightfold Path. In the meditation section of the Eightfold Path, it's actually called the samadhi section. So it's, it's pointing to the value of concentration and talks about right or wise concentration, which is usually defined as what's known as the four jhanas or states of absorption. I'm going to talk only a little bit about them. It's not the the focus of the talk tonight. I'm going to be more talking about the jhana factors. But they are what the Buddha um, held up again and again as the possibility of the heart and mind that's trained, this capacity to drop into absorption. And we usually translate this word samadhi as concentration. It's a typical English translation. And it's a reasonable translation, but just like many of our English words, it doesn't fully capture what this word samadhi is conveying. So better than um, concentration, because concentration for us often has a sense of narrowness and rigidity, you know, don't disturb me, I'm trying to concentrate on this, and and a sense of brittleness, that concentration has a, a lot of efforting in it. Samadhi is pointing to... Um, a quality of mind and heart that's unified and undistracted. They're the hallmarks of this kind of mind. It's steady. It has a focus to it, but it's not narrow or tight. You can have a concentrated mind, an experience of samadhi that's vast and inclusive, but it's not a papancha mind is the, you know, kind of the opposite of this mind. It's steady. And so this uh, potential or this possibility of deepening in concentration, the Buddha spoke again and about again and again in the suttas. But it's important to remember that uh, for the type of practice that we're doing here in this lineage, it's very clear that you don't need jhana, that level of concentration, to have insight, that uh, it's helpful to have some level of concentration, but each of us will find, you know, the, the, the right amount. Um, it's, 
even giving this talk tonight, I'm not saying, certainly not saying that concentration is the be-all and end-all of the path. No, it certainly isn't that, but it's even, you know, for each of us to find, you know, what's the right amount or how do we cultivate concentration, enough steadiness of mind, enough collection of mind that supports uh, our practice. And we can all benefit from that kind of deepening. Most everyone that I speak to, that would be helpful. And what I also want to hopefully talk about tonight and clarify is the different ways we can practice and the impact that these different uh, intentions have, and particularly the difference between what we might call samatha practice and vipassana. Um, samatha practice is the practice that leads to samadhi. It's, it's calming or tranquilizing practices. Vipassana is what we do here, where we open to the field of the six sense doors and changing objects and really very inclusive and open field of attention. At Spirit Rock, every year we teach a concentration retreat where we really explore this terrain, what it's like to collect and unify the mind around a simple object, and then what it's like to then take that steady mind and open it up to uh, investigation. People find it really helpful to explore this terrain. Um, and so we're somewhat doing that here in, the, in, a, in, a, in a Vipassana retreat. Uh, that's the main emphasis or what we're teaching here. But all of us are deepening some level of concentration. We need it. You know, if we want to pay attention to the complexity and the richness and the challenges that we can have in our experience, we need some steadiness of mind. If the mind is just flitting off here and there, we're not going to be able to um, observe, be with, uh, experience in a steady enough way to really begin to understand it, to deepen into it. So to see the characteristics of experience, the three characteristics of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and, and not-self, needs some degree of steadiness of mind to actually notice that in a way that leads to insight, you know, again, not just intellectually, but really able to see it. This kind of concentration is called kanika samadhi, moment-to-moment concentration, where the steadiness is on the noticing. The objects are changing, but with the steadiness of noticing, concentration gets deepened, kanika samadhi. In samatha meditation, tranquility meditation, it's often called calm abiding because we take a simple object, a single object, classically the breath, but it can include, there's in the Vasudhimaga, the manual of purification, um, path of purification, uh, there are 40 different concentration objects that are listed. Brahma-vihara's metta meditation is a a classic concentration object. We take a simple single object and we keep coming back to it. We keep resting the attention there and to everything else, there's a sense of not now, choosing, preferring this one object, this refined, simple object. And so um, this develops concentration. So sometimes you'll hear people use... um, Samatha is sort of synonymous with samadhi, but really samatha is the practice. Samadhi is the result, the mental state that gets cultivated out of that practice of simplicity. And 
in one, some ways you can see these two pr- types of practices as very opposite. It's like if you had a spectrum, at one end would be samatha, very simple, uh, single object. At the other, vipassana, uh, noticing the three characteristics, a really sense of changing objects, including you know, the whole range of the six sense doors. Um, but most of us, you know, it's like we have a slider bar and we can move it up and down and can skillfully choose which end of the spectrum is more skillful for us to be at at any particular time in our practice. And part of what we're learning is how to be able to move that slider bar with some skill when we know we need more steadiness, more simplicity, more concentration. When we can open up and there's enough uh, um, steadiness that we can be with the complexity of changing objects. So we're often practicing in that middle ground where there's some steadiness, breath, body, um, sounds, whatever can you use to steady the attention, but we're really interested and curious about other arisings. And it's helpful to be clear about that. A lot of people think they're practicing Vipassana meditation, and they're actually holding on to the breath, usually it's the breath, and relating to other objects as disturbances. Like that sound, it's disturbing my meditation. This knee pain, until I get rid of this knee pain, I can't concentrate, I can't meditate. That sound of someone breathing heavily, that's a disturbance to my meditation. I can't meditate with that going on. That's not vipassana. Vipassana is anything that arises can be included in the field of meditation. So just learning that for yourself, how to skillfully move that slider bar and where it is for you at any one time. Again, not to get overly zealous about this and trying to figure out, but just some sense of intentionality around this and the different qualities that get developed through these different emphases. And in this, the the style of practice that we teach here, as I said, don't consider that jhana is necessary. Uh, there's a level of concentration preceding jhana that we call access concentration or neighborhood concentration. And it's called those two words because it's considered to be give access to jhana or be in the neighborhood of jhana, but not quite the full absorption. And that's more than enough concentration to bring deep insight. There's enough steadiness, there's enough penetration, enough continuity and momentum, but the mind isn't in absorption. And truth be told, when the mind is absorbed, it can't open to insight. It's a very definition of that kind of absorption. It's, it's one-pointed. It's not seeing three characteristics, etc. So uh, access concentration, neighborhood concentration is more than enough for, for insight. So these uh, factors, the jhana factors that I want to talk about, are wholesome mental states, they're mental states, that we develop through meditation. And they, uh, even though they're called jhana factors and, and aid and give access to this experience of jhana, and they even comprise, the, especially the early, uh, there's four jhanas, rupa jhanas, um, and the five factors comprise the first jhana, which is, and jhanas are states of deep absorption. The mind kind of drops to a different level of um, one-pointedness with its object, really kind of folds in on itself and not disturbed by anything. There's a sense of um, deep 
penetration into the meditation object. Um, And as I talk about this, it may seem foreign to you, it may seem far distant to you, may seem esoteric, but hopefully you'll get, hopefully everyone will get something from this. And as I said earlier, more as pointers or possibilities in practice, not to reach after and grasp onto, as you'll hear me say again and again, it, it doesn't work that way. Uh, we have to be right where we are in our practice and develop these qualities skillfully. But these jhana factors get developed, whether you're intentional about them or not, in any meditation practice that you might do, especially sustained meditation practice. Um, and we need them. Uh, anything you try to take up, you'll actually develop these, need to develop some, if not all, of these qualities that I'll talk about. So the jhana factors are these wholesome mental states. I talked about feeding the wholesome mental states. The ones that we starve in the, in the map that I'm offering this evening are our old friends, the hindrances. And what's interesting is there are five jhana factors and five hindrances, and each of the jhana factors is an antidote or a um, counterbalance to one of the hindrances. And so they have this direct effect of cultivating these wholesome states and and, uh, diminishing the hindrances. And one of the things we have to acknowledge in our practice is if the mind isn't settled and connected to its meditation object, whether it's samatha or vipassana, one or more of the hindrances are present. It's really that simple. And so knowing that, we can start to understand how this map works. If the mind isn't settled, what's happening? What is present? And we've talked about this, you know, the naming or the recognizing of what's happening, particularly in this realm of the hindrances. And we've said again and again that um, mindfulness is the first and the key factor in this practice. Just recognizing what's happening, bringing mindfulness to it so we know clearly what the experience is. And mindfulness, some, especially samasati, right or wise mindfulness as a path factor, just through its functioning, reduces unwholesome states of mind and supports wholesome states of mind. It just naturally will do that when it's samasati. But we can engage with these difficult experiences, and we've used the acronym of RAIN before, such a helpful, uh, again, map for working with the hindrances, R for recognize, A for accept or allow. It's here. Equanimity says don't fight it in the sense of uh, resisting its, its manifestation, it's here. So we allow it, we accept that it's here. And the I can stand for investigation or interest. I like intimacy, getting closer to the experience. And then the N for not personal, non-identification, or just nature. This is, this is the, the, the uh, natural arising of in this mind and body current experience. And so we practice with the hindrances. We need to be able to do that. Um, But these factors, as they develop, naturally, as I said, are antidotes for these tendencies of mind. So the first two of the jhana factors usually come together. 
and they're vitaka and vichara in Pali. Vitaka is the aiming of attention. An object arises, uh, we have the intention to be mindful, so we aim the mindfulness towards that experience. Also sometimes initial application, to directing the attention towards the experience, the object. Vichara is the sustaining of attention, the continued application of mindfulness. Upandita would talk about aiming and rubbing, kind of. So it's that connecting with the object and then staying with it so that we have that sense that we know what it is, that we're clear about its experience. And it's interesting that literal uh, translation of these two words, vitaka and vichara, from Pali are... um, directed thought and sustained thought or evaluating thought. And it's pointing to, it's actually using kind of the cognitive capacity of the mind to know experience. As we do it in meditation, it's not using thought in the sense of a lot of words in the mind or thinking, but just that, you know, we've talked about perception and the knowing and naming of things. It's using that capacity of the mind. Tanasaru Bhikkhu, who teaches a lot um, about breath meditation and concentration, talks about thinking about the breath. So actually engaging, especially if we're using the breath for concentration, to actually have a relationship with the breath where you know and understand the breath through this capacity of mind. So vitaka and vichara are very allied. They come together. Well, they don't necessarily come together, but hopefully they come together. Vitaka, the aiming, vichara, the sustaining. And it's necessary, as I said, these are definitely the two factors that get developed in any kind of meditation that you do, and really in anything that you take up and you want to develop in. These qualities of mind are necessary. To learn a language or any kind of skill, this sense of focusing the attention and then staying with whatever it is long enough to know that experience. But in meditation, this long enough to know is very momentary. So it's not like we sit down at the beginning of a meditation session and determine to uh, apply the attention and then sustain it for the whole 45 minutes, hour or whatever. That's not the way it does it. It's in these mind, not quite mind moments in the sense the Abhidharma talks about, but for the duration of an in-breath or an out-breath, or perhaps, you know, the whole breath, um, for the duration of a sound, or a sight that you see, connecting with it and sustaining the attention long enough to know what it is. Sometimes it'll be momentary, sometimes it'll be a little longer, but we don't try to hang on to something because its nature is impermanent, it's changing. But this Vitaka Vichara is long enough to know, to drop into. So um, short periods are what, as many teachers say, short periods many times is how we develop this. What's necessary is the vichara is long enough to bridge to the next experience. That's what creates the continuity. When there's a gap, when the attention slides off the object, whether it's a breath or a sound or mindfulness of a thought, what happens? We lose our mindfulness. We get lost into, usually, thought, distraction. It's our common uh, refuge. If there's the vitaka and vichara, Uh, sustained enough, that creates the momentum. And what also happens if they're not sustained, that's where the hindrances come in, because we've lost our 
contact with the meditation object. So vitaka, the first of these um, factors, is the antidote to sloth and torpor, the hindrance of dullness or sleepiness. Um, all of the manifestations of spacing out, fogginess, whatever. And, you know, I think everyone I spoke to has reported, you know, different phases of that. Certainly at the beginning of the retreat, we all struggled with it. You know, sort of garden variety, sleepiness and tiredness, just lack of energy. You know, the energy it takes to get the meditation going, the deficiency we often have coming in from outside. So it's really common. But by this time of the retreat, you know, hopefully some of those factors have come into balance. And what we more commonly experience is a phenomenon called sinking mind. And that's actually a meditative experience that results of an imbalance from calm and energy or interest. What can happen is you can be meditating along, feeling that you're relatively mindful or quite mindful even, But as we're getting calmer, it's a natural progression. You probably feel there's not quite so much restlessness or resistance as you may have had. I know it can come in waves, but generally that's the trend. Mind's a little calmer, quiet. The body's not giving us so much uh, challenge. And so we're meditating, feeling, you know, if you were to ask, you'd say, yeah, I'm mindful. And then it's like someone switches the light out. Just, you know, you lose the plot. Sometimes it can come as a fog, it just wafts in and you're not even aware. Because, you, you know, it's 10.30 in the morning, you were wide awake a moment ago. But this imbalance leads to a disconnect in the mindfulness. And, you know, we can just kind of have that, sometimes, as I said, a sharp jerk or a lost into fog. Vitaka, this aiming of the attention, is the antidote because each time we do that with clarity, there's a little bit of energy. We have to apply energy, but there's a freshness in the connecting to the object that brings a little kind of a zing. It's like, ah, yes, the breath. You know, we have that sense of of, um, connection. And so we can start to notice this functioning that uh, if if we're actually really um, paying attention in this way, energy and alertness just become kind of effortless. Someone was speaking in interviews today about just the pleasure of mindfulness, noticing clearly what's happening. And so it's kind of gets self-perpetuating. There's a newness to experience. We're not thinking, oh, same old breath, same old mouthful of food, same old beautiful golden tree. There's a freshness to it. So this is Vitaka. And so even if what you're experiencing is sinking mind, the same antidotes that we talk about for um, garden variety sleepiness are helpful just, you know, to to recommit, to to find this sense of motivation or intention, to connect with whatever your chosen object is. But if that's not working, then we do what we need to do. Open the eyes, stand up, straighten the posture. For me, I know what worked when I was having this experience on a a long retreat here. It was like that middle of the morning meditation. Without fail, I'd just, you know, fall asleep. And I realized once I saw the pattern of that, I just determined that I was going to do, I wasn't going to succumb. I tried everything, you know, even because I was practicing in my room, just getting up and 
lying down, you know, I'll take a nap. And of course, then I was wide awake. Um, so I just, in my, in my seated posture, I just determined to breathe a little more deeply. And there was something about doing that gave me a stronger object to pay attention to. There was more clarity in the Vitaka Vichara. Um, the breathing more deeply energized the body. There was a stronger object to pay attention to, oxygenated the blood, whatever it does, you know, what breathing. Not heavily huffing and puffing, but just a little more rhythmic, a little more deep. And those sittings became the best sittings of the day. Because the calm was already there, I just needed to bring in a little more intentionality and the mind was able to find that balance. So we can use this clarity of intention to really brighten the meditation through this uh, connecting clearly through vitaka. The second fact of vichara, this sustaining of attention, even in this momentary way, is the antidote to doubt. And so interesting to, to see this for ourselves. Doubt is in some ways the most difficult hindrance because it like undermines everything we do. You know, often it seems like the most difficult hindrance is the one we're having right now. That's the hardest one. But doubt really is challenging, right? Because it just leads to confusion. You know, what am I doing here? How many people, how many of you have had the thought, why did I think this was a good idea to come on this retreat? I know, I nearly always do. What am I meant to be doing? And am I doing it? And if I'm doing it, am I doing it right? And if I'm doing it right, is it working? All, you know, all of these questions, are other people doing it? What are other people doing? Are they doing it right? Am I doing it wrong? Who's doing it right? Who knows what they're doing? All of these variations. You know, do even the teachers know what they're talking about? They don't know my experience. How can they know what I should be doing? And it just gets us into this swirl of confusion. Vichara allows us to connect with our experience so we know it for ourselves. We don't have to rely on confirmation for outside, some other person to um, tell us what's happening. We know what our experience is because we're in it in a way that's not confused, that actually uh, knows what's happening. And so it penetrates and steadies. So you can see how it allows faith to develop. We know for ourselves. I had this very direct experience of these factors and the factor of doubt keeping me superficial. It's not a a meditation experience, but it's uh, still applicable. Um, Some years ago, Guy and I thought that we'd like to learn to scuba dive. We both loved snorkeling. I love snorkeling. I love swimming, snorkeling. And it's like meditation. You know, you think, well, if snorkeling's good, scuba diving must be even better. Let's go a longer retreat, a deeper retreat. So we had that idea. But it's a little expensive to do. Um, But we were going to go to Australia to visit my family. We found we could, for free, get a layover in Fiji where it's cheaper to learn to scuba dive. So that's what we did. But it's one of those things in retrospect, it's not quite the two things you want to put together, like cheap and scuba diving. It's like, you know, you see those ads for cut price LASIK or something. Yeah, I want the cheapest person out there to, you know, drill into my eyes. But anyway, we, did, we didn't think of that. We went. Um, and the other thing we didn't think about, later my sister said, didn't you know that? Like, no. It's, you know, opposite 
like Australia, opposite side of the planet. And so um, it was January, which is cyclone season in Fiji. We didn't know that, but anyway, so off we go. We land in um, the main island. We get a little plane to this smaller island. Someone picks us up. You know, we booked into this resort, didn't know anything about it. Picks us up, drives us to a dock. We get on a boat. There's no roads on this island. Boat around to this little place. It was lovely, but it was fun. It was all just thatched roofs. Everything was very simple. And the equipment was a little, you'd have to say, well used. You know, it wasn't like sparkling. But the dive master was this Fijian guy named Ezra. And I just knew we could trust him. He was built like a mountain and he knew his stuff. So we trusted him and he was a good teacher. But in this little resort, in quotes, there was no swimming pool. As I said, it was just sort of thatched huts and little paths through, through the coconut palms. So we had to do our learning dives out in uh, the Pacific Ocean. And it wasn't an easy entry either. There was a lot of rocks and coral to go in. You had to find your way in. And as I have already said, cyclone season. So the waves were building up. So it wasn't like, you know, just go and float in this easy pool. You know, we, I remember hanging on to Ezra. You know, he was just landing there. But anyway, he explained how the equipment worked. It's very complicated, scuba diving. You have um, weights to sink and this buoyancy vest to float. And part of your practice is how to, you know, go down and how to know how to go up and the the buoyancy vest is filled by the air on your back. So he explained how to do that so, and how to breathe and everything. And, but you have to go out and do it, right? And, and it's, you know, it's a little, can be dangerous, obviously. Anyway, so we go out for our first dive. Ezra goes first and Guy goes after him. And you're swimming along just because you've got all this stuff on you. Naturally, you sink a little. And so they're sinking and sinking. But you get to a point where you have to do whatever it was he told us to help us sink. <laughs> And so they're going down, and I'm doing what I think he told us to help us sink, but it's not working. And there are two buttons on this thing, and what do you do if one button doesn't work? <laughs> Press the other one, right? But that doesn't seem to be working either. Press the first one, not working. So I'm just pressing, pressing, and they're going down, down. They're obviously doing it, and I'm going up, 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 because the down button isn't working, but obviously the up button is. So, you know, I'm going up, up, up. <laughs> And you know what they say, out in space they can't hear you scream? You, not under water either. So I'm like... And they're just... And I'm swimming along, but, you know, the distance is getting further. And finally I see Ezra figuring he should check. So he looks back, oh, there's Guy. He looks further back, you know, and you're in the three dimensions, like... I mean, literally, I was on the surface, and he comes up and he explains to me that when you want to go down, you have to lift this thing above your head so that you can't do it down here. It's got to be higher than the tanks or something. So that's what I, that's what I hadn't paid attention to in the instructions. With that simple instruction, I was able to then go down and go deeper. Without that, just like doubt, where there's confusion, you stay superficial. You stay on the surface. And like most of us, we sort of mess around. Like, try a little bit of that. Try that's not working. Try that. And what we have to do is land in the experience and help us drop. So if you are in, uh, um, in that, 
you know, able to stay with your chosen object. You know, there's no easy, quick fix. It's not like anything that I say, great, now, now you can go out and just do this. But there are supports that we've offered and, and uh, that are really helpful. Mental noting is a great way to, to really recognize, am I connecting to the object? Even simple things like with the breath, in, out. I was doing a self-retreat a while ago, and even though the conditions were good, my mind just wouldn't settle. Finally, I tried to rein it in, and I just uh, used this practice here, now. On the in-breath, here. On the out-breath, now. Kind of here. Gather the scattered attention in now. What's happening now? And I would do that at the beginning of every sit for a few minutes just to help, help myself collect. The third factor is pitti, P-I-T-I, which we've talked about before because it's one of the awakening factors. So Bonnie spoke about it. And it's usually translated as rapture or joy. So as soon as we talk about it, everyone always says, well, I want some of that. Um, But it is a mental, a function of meditation, uh, especially of the mind getting relatively concentrated, some degree of concentration. We often translated as rapt attention or zestful interest. What happens is the mind becomes so uh, interested in the object that there's just a natural resting, a natural absorption in the object. It's like a magnetic attraction. I've heard Joseph uh, use this imagery before, and I've always found it helpful that when we start meditating, it's like uh, we have an upturned bowl, and the mindfulness is like a ball, a ball, marble or something, and just on the top, and you can't keep it on the top because it's round, it just falls off. After a while, it flattens out, it's like a flat plane, and it, it'll move, but it has to be kind of pushed. But after some time, it's like an upturned bowl. And yeah, the, the, the attention can move a little, but it naturally drops back. There's a gravitational pull to the object. So this is what happens as rapture gets developed. And it's a mental factor, but we can often experience it in the body as, you know, pervading, um, you know, can, can, be, can be blissful, but sometimes it can be um, difficult energy, you know, kind of sparking energy or uh, uh, lightning kind of flashes, um, pervading energy, pushing, rocking, distortions of perceptions are all in this territory of um, pity. And... As I said, it usually you know, sounds intriguing, but it can become kind of disturbing or unpleasant if it gets uh, too strong or out of balance, it needs to be in balance with the other factors. But this quality mental factor of rapture counterbalances the hindrance of ill will, all of the pushing away, not liking of experience, because we're now delighting in our meditation object. The mind is just happy, content to rest there. And so this, the, when the mind is in that state, aversion doesn't enter the picture. We're not uh, in any state of uh, rejection of experience. We're just fully present. And so it's not as though, again, we can just do this, but interest in the object and really surrendering, you might say, to the meditation experience allows this dropping in for um, this quality of rapture, pity, to develop. The third factor, uh, sorry, the fourth jhanic factor is uh, sukha. Sukha. 
Uh, and that's happiness or pleasure, opposite of dukkha, sukha. Uh, her one teacher translated as happy contentment of mind and body. And it's a subtler form of pity or, or, or the rapture. And they're, they're very closely aligned. Some teachers talk about pity sukha as though they're one thing, but I really feel them as very distinct energies. And sukha in its softness and sweetness can actually be a real relief after the intensity of the rapture. And often we find ourselves smiling a little, there's an ease to it. And it's interesting that this softer quality comes out of the energy that we get from the absorption uh, from the pity. But the pity has to balance, soften a little, and then the sukha can be um, uh, more noticed. It's hard to notice it when the rapture is strong. Sukha balances the hindrance of restlessness and worry. And again, it's because we're finding a degree of contentment in our simple present moment experience that's not about getting objects or other external experiences, sense delights. It's actually finding it in this simplicity of experience and that the mind has ease and contentment. So it's not buying into the restlessness and the worry, these future plans and the fears and the distractions that we have. It's actually content here and now. Restlessness is so much about not being okay. Worry, regret about the past, worry about the future. With this quality of sukha, there's contentment and ease. And then the last factor is ekagata, usually translated as one-pointedness. But again, uh, don't let the one-pointedness or the the one or the point make you think that it's narrow. It again means more non-distraction. And uh, sometimes used synonymously with samadhi or concentration, uh, but it's its own specific uh, quality. It, it, it's also sometimes used synonymously or it has the flavor of equanimity. It has some coolness or calmness or balance of mind to it. Ajahn Sumedho has this great definition of ekagata. He said it's the one point that includes everything. So there's a steadiness there, but it's not a shutting out of experience. There's a landing in experience, but again, not looking outward for happiness or contentment. There's a sense of ease and equanimity and balance in the mind. And this factor is the antidote to sense the hindrance of sense desire, to the forms of wanting. Because, as I said, there's a sense of completeness in the moment. And this, for most of us, is a a revelation that that's possible, that the mind can be completely content in just stillness and presence, rather than having to feel, I spoke last time about clinging and how the mind moves into the wanting mode. This is kind of the opposite of that, that there's contentment and ease in the simplicity of presence. We're not, we know that this chasing after sense desires, chasing after experiences, objects, doesn't do it that their, their very nature is unsatisfactory, fleeting. We can't hold on to them in a way that brings lasting happiness. So 
discovering this for ourselves just lessens a little that allure of the sense desires. So these are the factors and the way they balance the hindrances. How do they all come together? So it's not as though knowing this we can just go, I want get me some of that, get rid of some of this. All, we all come into practice with different experiences, different conditions, causes and conditions, different capacities, different intentions. But knowing this map, again, it, it's more about inclining the mind and, and bringing skill, skill uh, developing skills rather than you know, trying to grasp hold of something. Um, part of this map is working skillfully with the hindrances, really acknowledging when they're present, not sort of denying them, pushing them away, but learning how to work with them skillfully. Um, one of my colleagues, Philip Moffat, will often say, don't be disturbed by disturbances. We can often see if the hindrances are there and we get all upset about it, that's actually more disturbing than the hindrance itself reinforcing the good experiences and good habits that we do have. This is so important. Uh, delighting in the wholesome. You know, people have been talking about gratitude or compassion or ease. Let yourself feel that. This is actually a real support. But what's also important to recognize is all of these meditative lists tend to have a pattern to them. And the pattern is there are energizing or arousing factors that begin the momentum. And in this case, Vitaka and Vichara, these are essential. And they are usually the only ones we can have any control over, aiming and sustaining the attention. Don't have complete control by any means, but we can, through, with some intention, have that relationship with experience. So they're the engine of practice, and we need to reconnect with them over and over again, countless hundreds, thousands of times. Again, have that willingness, that freshness. But as we make that commitment, that steadiness, that momentum, whether it's changing objects or single objects, the other factors naturally develop. And there's usually a peak in the factors. In this list, it's pity. Pity is the kind of most energetic manifestation. But all of these lists tend towards the calming. So in this list, sukha, the sweetness, contentment, then ikagata, the one-pointedness, synonymous with samadhi or equanimity. Same with the seven factors. They peak with the pity and then they go to the calming. This is instructive for us. This practice isn't about getting peak experiences, some experience of bliss or heightened whatever. It always, onward leading, is towards calm, tranquility, equanimity, concentration. They're the doorways. They're the factors that lead to insight. And so knowing that, again, you know, it's great to have, if we do have blissful experiences, but they're not the point or the purpose of the path. Also important to remember, concentration isn't the point or the purpose of the path. Concentration is a tool to cultivate the mind that's ripe for awakening, ripe for insight, ripe for opening. And so we learn we can train the mind and heart in this direction, knowing the map, what are the skillful means we can use to get there. 
Concentration can be a great support. We only need the right amount. You know, it can be very easy to have grasping mind about, you know, giving a, hearing this talk and wanting more. We need as much as we need. Really trust that. But it can be what grounds and steadies your practice. It's kind of the wind in your sails. Really supports the practice. And as I said, can lead to the direction or the intention of this practice, which is for insight, for greater freedom, happiness, and contentment. And I want to just finish with the words of the Buddha as he was uh, speaking to a deva. A deva is a celestial being in the Buddhist cosmology. That was just pretty commonplace, but it doesn't matter who he's speaking to. He makes this statement, the Buddha, I crossed over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. The flood is samsara, the, the, the plane of suffering. And the, but the deva says, but how, dear sir, did you cross over the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place? And the Buddha responds, when I pushed forward, I was whirled about. When I stayed in place, I sank. And so I crossed the flood without pushing forward, without staying in place. That's the koan for our practice of how to give sincere effort without struggling and striving, but without giving up. This is the sweet spot of practice that we can cultivate and incline towards. Let's just let the words settle into silence for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.